Welcome to my podcast on the Lord's Supper. I've said before that what I feed you in about 20 to 25 minutes is an appetizer and you need to go to your Bible to receive the full meal. In this podcast, the same principle applies. We're going to delve into an understanding of the Lord's Supper, but honestly, in order to get the full meal, you do need to go to Scripture. What exactly is the Lord's Supper? And what is Jesus serving at this supper? And who is he inviting to partake in this supper? In this podcast, we'll talk about what it is and what it isn't. We will discuss the Lord's Supper from a Lutheran lens as well as a Catholic lens to help you better understand both some similarities and some differences, which include what you're receiving and who is invited. Ready? Okay, let's get started. What events started the partaking of the Lord's Supper? It was started by Jesus during the Passover meal, the night before his crucifixion. So, this was the Thursday night immediately before Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus later that same night would be arrested and handed over to the high priest for questioning. Jesus and his disciples were celebrating Passover. Now, Passover was the Jewish feast to mark the remembrance of that incredible miracle of God's angel of death that passed over all the Hebrew doors that were marked with the lamb's blood. And this was the night before Pharaoh let all the Hebrews leave Egypt. The homes not marked with the lamb's blood saw the death of their firstborn. But God spared the Hebrews and Passover reminded the Hebrews of God's faithfulness. So Jesus and his disciples were sharing this Passover meal in an upper guest room in Jerusalem, not far from the temple. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22, verses 15 through 20. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, if you attend a church that offers the Lord's Supper, you would hear something very similar to this recited before receiving the Lord's Supper. You would think all four gospel accounts of this really important event would be similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do talk about the meal that Jesus had with his disciples, but John's gospel doesn't. Instead, John's gospel talks about bread being Jesus's body much earlier in the gospel. In fact, it's the story of when Jesus fed the 5,000 with 
the five loaves of bread and the two fish. In John chapter 6, the people are gathered in Capernaum and they're looking for Jesus because they're still in awe over the miracle that took place in their presence of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. But this is what Jesus tells them and it's really strange. He says, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, as you can imagine, the people were really curious about what they had to do to get this special food. Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The people then ask for a sign because we always want God to show us something, right? They wanted something like the manna in the desert. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus then says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at that last day. Well, the people have a hard time believing Jesus and ask, Hey, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> They've done that quite a bit. In other words, who is this guy talking about eternal life? Only God can claim that. Jesus responds, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live 
because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. <laughs> you can just imagine their faces, right? Was this some kind of weird cannibalistic ritual? Eating flesh, drinking blood? This was a weird thing to have on a menu for dinner guests. What exactly was Jesus inviting his guests to do? Well, as you can imagine, multiple interpretations have evolved over the past 2,000 years. But even when Jesus was still with the apostles, they responded with something like, wait, you want us to do what? Now, yeah, they were used to Jesus saying some pretty wild things. But most likely this was up there with the most wackadoo thing they had ever heard Jesus say. But let's take a step back. Jesus tended to use the visible things of life in his parables and when he was talking to them. Water, bread, wine. And then God embodies the gospel into these things with a word of promise. I am the font of living water. I am the bread of life. I am the cup of eternal salvation. Christ gives himself to those who are hungry, to those who are thirsty. Not to those who, yeah, they can take it or leave it, or they think that they somehow have to earn it. No. Now, these things still remain water, bread, and wine. They don't physically change. It's the oral word of promise joined with these common everyday things that gives life. And isn't it so incredible that God acts through these selected elements of his created world as a pure gift of promise of salvation? water for baptism, bread and wine for the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther understood the Lord's Supper in a very special way. He actually equated it to Jesus's last will and testament for us. That's actually really beautiful. He said it was the last testament of a dying man upon his heirs who can't do anything to earn the inheritance. It's just given to them. Luther didn't understand it as like a covenant or a contract because that would somehow imply a contribution on both sides. But we can't earn this salvation. It's a gift freely given. It's the divine promise of Christ sealed with the sacrament of his body and blood present in the bread and the wine. Our inheritance? What is it? Well, <laughs> it's death to us being a sinner and new life as a newborn child of God. Martin Luther, way back in the 1500s, really took great umbrage with the correct understanding of the Lord's Supper 
And he dropped a lot of ink, arguing that the Lord's Supper was, in fact, the actual body and blood of Jesus. Many wanted to explain the, well, utter impossibility of this, as if they actually could explain anything about God, the creator of the universe, just using Aristotelian reason. Now, that's a fancy way of saying they were trying to explain this using logic. And yes, God has given us logic and reason, and there are some really good places to use it. However, understanding the works of God, that needs to be given over to faith and the word of scripture. This is where Martin Luther really put his foot down. How can this be the real body and blood of Christ? Well, Luther said, it's because Jesus said so. Is means is. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he meant it. Jesus did not say, this is a symbol. This is a sign. This is a thing that points to a thing that makes you remember a thing. No, he said, this is the thing. Okay, so as Lutherans, we say Jesus is there. He's in it. He's above it. He's below it. He's around it. He is there. The thing about Jesus is that he is omnipresent. Now, that's a cool word that means he's everywhere all at once. Yeah, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We actually say this in our statement of faith. And the right hand of God is just a fancy way of saying the power of God. But Jesus is God. So he's also right here, right now with you and me and with your dog and up in the sky and even in the chair you're sitting in. He just is. Now, the difference is that that chair or the dog or the sky is not going to save you from eternal damnation. But the body and blood of Jesus shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins will save you. How? Because Jesus said so. He said, who eats my body and drinks my blood shall not die, but have eternal life. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that he who believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. Lutherans and many Protestant faiths believe that it is the power of the words of Jesus and not the pastor that makes the bread and wine, the body and blood of Jesus given to you. I'm going to repeat that. It is the words of Jesus that make it so, not our words that make it so. This is the body of Christ given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said it, therefore it is so. The Latin term for this is the verbum real. That means that the words make it true. God speaks it and it's true. 
Think of creation when God said, let there be light, and there was light. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, which was written about 25 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, he addresses an interesting question about the Lord's Supper. He talks about who should and should not receive it and why. And this is interesting. The Corinthians were the people in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was a large city in Greece surrounded by, well, a lot of corruption and violence and pagan worship. So the New Corinthian church was struggling. And Paul admonishes some of those early followers of Christ for what he calls the improper way that they're receiving and understanding the Lord's Supper. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Whoa. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Or another way to say this is he eats it to his own condemnation. This is a serious claim. It seems that people in Corinth were coming to church drunk or really hungry. In fact, Paul says that some were so hungry that they weren't waiting for anyone else to receive the Lord's Supper and were literally hoarding all the bread. Paul also said some were openly sinning and drunk and therefore couldn't possibly understand what they were receiving. In the Lutheran tradition, in order to avoid what Paul warns about, which is receiving the Lord's body and blood on a lark and not really believing what we're receiving, we ask ourselves four questions before receiving the Lord's Supper. And if we can't answer these questions, we don't receive communion that day. And we answer them to ourselves. I mean, we, we speak it publicly, but no one's asking us individually these questions. The questions are, are you baptized? Do you believe that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness? Do you intend, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to amend your sinful ways? Which means you can't be blatantly sinning and still receive the Lord's Supper, right? Do you believe that Jesus is truly present in the bread and the wine? So those are the four questions. And these questions are important because as Paul reminds us in chapter 6 of Galatians, God cannot be mocked. All right, so you still might be thinking, well, can anyone receive communion? Huh. <laughs> This is a tricky question, and the answer is different in different faith communities. But I'll first discuss this from a Lutheran perspective. You may feel that the Lord's Supper should be freely given to all who understand what they are partaking, and especially if they answered all those 
questions in the affirmative. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe Jesus is truly present. But what if someone is drunk or on drugs or openly sinning like was apparently happening in Corinth? Now, your immediate response may be, well, that's their problem and not for the pastor to judge. In other words, that's between them and God. But now think deeper to what is the role of the pastor? What have they been entrusted to do? The role of the pastor is to proclaim the gospel and to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So should the pastor deliver the body and blood of Christ to someone who they know is not capable at that particular moment to believe? Sin is unbelief, pure and simple. If they are knowingly, actively sinning, then they can't be believing at that moment. Now, yes, as Luther pointed out 500 years ago, you, me, everybody, we vacillate simultaneously between being a sinner and being justified, you know, a million billion times a day, which is also why we need to keep that word of promise in our ears Christ died for us and for the forgiveness of our sins. And yes, being baptized, we are sealed with this promise, even during our times of doubt. It's just important for our peace of mind to always have that promise in our ears. But what about, well, let's just say for a second, the rest of the congregation? They notice this drunk person or this openly sinning person go to the altar or however you receive communion. Remember, sin is unbelief. If the pastor and the congregation sees this person knowingly, openly sinning, and that means that they cannot at that moment believe, which means that the body and blood of Christ is to their condemnation. Well, you now see how important pastoral care becomes, right? Maybe the pastor does give them communion at that moment to not create a ruckus, but then counsels them afterwards. It's tricky business, isn't it? We do not want anyone to receive the body and blood of Jesus to their condemnation. But you see, this is not an open and shut case, is it? And this is something for you to think about and also to pray for your pastoral leaders if they're ever faced with this situation. But I just want to impress upon the listener that, look, none of us is worthy to receive salvation. Jesus came for the sick. That means you and me, not for the well. If we think we're well and we're worthy, (laughs) then we really don't need a doctor, do we? And Jesus means it when he says, this is for you. He died for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. It's God doing this to us. We're the passive recipient. Our faith and conduct have nothing to do with the efficacy of the promise. This is God's work, not ours. Catholics, they do have their own set of hedges to protect the receiver of the body and blood of Christ from receiving condemnation. In order for Catholics to receive communion, they 
need to be Catholic, baptized Catholic. They need to be regular church attenders. They also should go to confession and therefore can approach the altar with a clean conscience. The Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper is, as Lutherans believe, we are receiving the actual body and blood of Jesus. But this is interesting. Uh, it's through something called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. In other words, in the Catholic faith, the substance of the bread and wine, they believe, are transformed by the priest when he says the words of institution. They believe that there is a metaphysical change in the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. Both Catholics and Lutherans acknowledge this is a free gift of Christ's forgiveness. The difference is that Lutherans focus on the power of Jesus's words. This is my body and blood and not on the power of the pastor in saying those words or even in trying to explain how it happens. In the Lutheran tradition, as the priesthood of all believers, anyone can share the Lord's Supper because it is not the power of our words. It's the power of Jesus's words, which also means that the bread and wine in and of themselves are not holy. They're bread and wine. It's the words of Jesus that make them his body and blood. We're the receiver of the promise, not the giver of the promise, which is also why in the Lutheran tradition, lay people can go and give communion to our homebound, for example. And it's not blessed by the pastor ahead of time. That does nothing. It is the actual words in the presence of the person because it's a promise given to them. Do you have to receive the Lord's Supper in order to go to heaven? Well, that's a really good question. And the answer is no. It's a gift, freely given to remind us daily, weekly, or, or however often we receive it, that Jesus died on the cross for us. Our sins are forgiven. Take this in remembrance of me. We take the body and blood because honestly, we have short memories. We forget that we are his. We forget that our sins are forgiven. This is the life-giving bread and wine. This is food for our soul. Now, yeah, we have not completely lost our old sinful ways. We will continue to sin up until we die. We are, as the Psalms remind us, weary and we grow faint. We need that constant reminder that Jesus came for us. We need to have Christ's forgiveness in our ear because there's only one way to go, guys. If Christ isn't in our ear, then it's the devil who is in our ear. And believe me, he does not want us to hear the good news of Jesus. He wants us to forget it. 
but we have the promise. Hear and believe. Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. And he will come again for you. And you will be with him forever. This is the good news for you.